Well, thank you again for doing this. Um, and where are you right now? Right now, I am in Port Prince. I won't tell you where I am specifically because since Wednesday, I've been living in different places because we are in Haiti and we just have our president assassinated. And I think that I should take precaution. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, July 15th. Christian Emmanuel Sanon, qui est maintenant sous contrôle de la police, l'été en contact avec une compagnie spécialisée en sécurité, une compagnie vénézuélienne basée aux États-Unis. In the past week in Haiti, since President Jovenel Moïse was killed inside his home by a squad of gunmen, there has been an incredible series of events surrounded by intrigue and rumors and conspiracies. And what we're seeing now is both an ongoing security crisis in Haiti, but also this constitutional crisis about who is in charge of the country right now. We still have a lot of confusion in the country right now because People are asking a lot of questions. We talked to journalist Weedlore Marincourt about what it's been like in Haiti since the death of President Moïse. As the investigation is moving forward, you feel like people have more questions than answers, quite frankly. The president was assassinated in his residence at 1 a.m., according to the prime minister, last Wednesday. But still today, we don't know how a group of asylums, most of them Colombians, could enter the home, the personal home, the intimacy of the president of this country and kill him and dread his wife while nobody in his security detail reportedly injured and You know, lots of other questions as well with regard to why these supposed asylums, alleged asylums, were still in the area of the killing several hours right after the assassination. And how do people feel about that? The fact that there are still so few answers about what happened and what this means for the future. There is a deep suspicion in Haiti with regard to the government. This administration has a long past in sort of small arrangements with the truth, and sometimes they broadcast uh, untruth. And these instances make people question whatever the authorities are saying. And remember, Haiti is a state where the justice system is not strong. I can't name, for instance, one instance in the past three, four years when the authorities conducted an inquiry, an investigation, and put answers to the public. On Wednesday night, Haitian police announced the arrest of two new suspects, including a former top police officer. They have also detained the head of security at the presidential palace, and they're tracking down other fugitives. Emmanuel, But there's this question of why did this happen? Who would have wanted the president dead? We talked to foreign affairs columnist Ishan Theroar about some of those questions. So the story that's emerging from the Haitian police is one that they lay the plot at the feet of a detachment of mercenaries, almost all Colombian mercenaries, 
who were hired in the Dominican Republic, which is next door to Haiti, and brought over for a mission. We know as well that in that group, there were two Haitian-American interpreters, possibly with them. And this foreign outfit carried out this brazen mission that saw them essentially walk into the presidential compound and kill the president. And then there's this fascinating new wrinkle where Haitian authorities recently announced that they had arrested a man uh, with long-standing ties to Florida, who they see as a possible suspect uh, ringleader of this assassination plot. Someone who not only hired the uh, mercenaries, but had visions of himself being installed in power as the next president of Haiti. That man, Christian Emmanuel Sanon, was accompanied by the security detail of former Colombian service members. And according to the Pentagon, some of those servicemen had received U.S. military training in the past. So then who actually is in power right now? In theory, the, the voice of the government right now is Prime Minister Claude Joseph. But he was supposed to be succeeded by a man picked by the assassinated President Jovenel Moïse last week uh, named Ariel Henry. So you have two uh, rival prime ministerial claimants. Then you have a number of other people who have, through other processes, been designated as potential presidents via via the Supreme Court and via Haiti's semi-defunct Senate. It was already a dire situation, but on top of it now, you have what the experts called a constitutional desert, which is you are Mm. in a vacuum of power and there is nothing in the books to tell you who should run the country. Moïse, as it was, had been presiding over a political crisis where his opponents argued that he had overstayed his term. He suggested that he had one more year left. There were protests against him. Critics accused his government of growing more authoritarian in certain ways and of hollowing out institutions. Parallel to all this... Jimmy Cherizier, he is one of Haiti's most powerful gang leaders. You saw an incredibly worrying rise of gang violence. And his threats risk plunging Haiti into deeper chaos. The penetration and control that drug cartels had in the capital, Port-au-Prince, was something that many were talking about before any of the developments of the past few weeks. International I ask all the gangs to mobilize, take to the streets. Four weeks before the assassination of the president, gang members actually killed about 15 people in the Haiti capital, Port-au-Prince. And during these killings, you see one high-profile opponent to the president and also a journalist were killed. And during the months of June and all the way until today, you have several people, actually thousands of people, who left their homes because of gang violence, especially in the south of the capital. And in the past several years, Haiti suffered and the you know, middle class in Haiti suffered from several high-profile kidnappings and assassinations. 
And at the time, you would have hundreds of kidnappings in a month. And these situations that caused people not to go into the street, especially at night, and to take uh, extra precautionary measures. But in the state that we are in, things starting to become a little bit dire. How has day-to-day life in Haiti changed in this past week? In these circumstances, I spoke to people who are very worried about what to expect in the coming days. I spoke to one woman, for instance, who is buying food as a precautionary measure. If things get worse in the street, she would have you know, enough to feed her family. But of course, not everybody can do that because according to a UN report, 4.4 millions of people right now in Haiti are in urgent needs of food. So this all comes to a fore at a time when Haiti is enduring another wave of the traumas that we've unfortunately come to associate with this island. You're seeing major food shortages, you've seen failing state institutions, and of course a COVID outbreak that is gaining traction in a country that is perhaps one of the least prepared to deal with it. So I think in part because of those reasons, over the weekend, Haiti's interim government basically asked the U.S. and asked President Biden to send troops to help stabilize the country. Is that going to happen? That's hard to see right now. It would take a very grave deterioration of the security situation and a probably more universal kind of clamor from Haitians for uh, that kind of assistance for the Biden administration or other regional partners to consider some kind of military mission to the country, we're not quite there yet. You can certainly bet that the Biden administration is not keen on any kind of entangled commitment to Haiti. Uh, It doesn't want to be in the business of dispatching uh, troops to Caribbean nations. This is not the crisis that a Biden administration really wants to get knee-deep into. It's going to try to fast-track support to Haiti, Haiti's fight against the pandemic and against a COVID surge in a country that has virtually no vaccinations. And so they're sending vaccines and other logistical support on that front. And there are obvious legacies of past American interventions in the country that remain. Haiti, after the devastating 2010 earthquake, saw the presence of a UN mission, which in and of itself, it was very controversial and and has attracted a lot of Haitian anger, partially because of a scenario where we believe that UN peacekeepers brought in a devastating cholera outbreak into the country. On behalf of the United Nations, I want to say very clearly, we apologize uh, to the Haitian uh, people. We simply did not do enough with regard to the cholera outbreak and its spread in Haiti. We are profoundly sorry for our role. These memories are fresh in the head of Haitians here. And when you ask them if they want foreign troops on the ground, uh, most people telling you no. Uh, They are telling you it's not a good idea. But at the same time, you can hear some folks telling you all as well. It's probably not a bad idea to have some sort of foreign force to come and restore some sort of stability. 
Most people are saying that what they want from the international community is to sit back and listen to the grassroots folks, to the civil society, because they also have a say in what's going on in Haiti. And we have a long history of U.S. and U.N. and international community thinking that they know better about how the country should be and coming with good intentions but leaving the country right after in a less good shape than when they came. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In talking to Weedlore and Ishan about what's going on in Haiti right now, we kept hearing this idea that to really understand this moment, you have to understand so much of the context and history of this deeply intertwined relationship between the U.S. and Haiti. And that is, frankly, a history that most Americans do not know. I think it really goes back to the founding of both these countries. Haiti is the kind of vestigial limb that Americans don't think about when they think about the story of hemispheric freedom and liberation that surrounds the American Revolution. The Haitian Revolution started in 1791, and one of the people we talked to about this moment is Mark Schuler. Anthropologist working in Haiti since 2001, professor at NIU, Northern Illinois University, and currently president of the Haitian Studies Association. At this moment in history, France controlled Haiti. And France had become incredibly wealthy very quickly because of the unpaid labor of half a million enslaved Black Haitians. Life expectancy on the Caribbean plantation was seven years. These are folks that were condemned to die and they decided, you know, enough is enough. There was a huge revolt of enslaved people and people of color in the French colony of Saint-Domingue, which we now know as Haiti, that threw off the French slave-owning yoke. And Haiti emerged as this really radical, powerful, independent state of people of color in the Western Hemisphere. At the same time, remained this kind of terrifying concept to the United States. You have in papers of Thomas Jefferson real fear and articulated fear that what happened in Haiti could happen in the slave-owning states of the South. Despite recent revisionist attempts with certain musicals, Haiti was not welcomed by the U.S., which was founded by basically as by slave owner to maintain slavery. Jefferson himself made sure that the U.S. isolated diplomatically Haiti. And there was a gag rule in Congress in the 1820s to prevent the word Haiti from being uttered. So again, the white supremacy of the day could not allow there to be an independent black nation. For the bulk of the 19th century, the U.S. tried to isolate or ignore Haiti. It only recognized Haiti in 1862, which is, you know, more than half a century after Haiti actually won its independence. The French the former colonial country involved in the matter, only recognized Haiti in 1825, but they did so only after, with military pressure, they forced the Haitians to 
accept paying for their freedom. Haiti was required to pay France what would today be about $21 billion. And to pay off that debt, it took them more than 80 years. It was the only time where the loser of a war demands ransom for the winner. Haiti is the poorest country in the hemisphere because, not despite foreign intervention, the slaveholders punished Haiti for their role in ending slavery. The kind of indemnity that, that many experts and historians believe permanently enfeebled Haiti's development for decades thereafter. The, Haiti only was able to pay off its debt to France for its freedom in the 20th century. So from its inception, Haiti was saddled by a kind of burden of history placed on it by these Western powers. This history got even more complicated in 1915. That is when President Woodrow Wilson sent U.S. Marines to Haiti as part of this effort to control Haiti's political and financial interests. And this is the the troubling precedent, right? The last time a Haitian president was assassinated was in 1915, and that precipitated a political crisis uh, which saw U.S. troops go into the country prop up a kind of client regime and remain from 1915 to 1934, 19-year occupation that lasted almost as long as the current U.S. presence in Afghanistan. But very few Americans think about it or remember it when they think about their own history and their own committed war efforts. The U.S. occupation installed a lighter-skinned elite. It made the, the U.S. Treasury a fiduciary controller of the Haitian Treasury and the Haitian National Bank was ruled by uh, the, the military and by Citibank. And there was a brutal counterinsurgency carried out by the U.S. At the same time, you had major financiers from you know, New York's Wall Street go about and consolidate the Haitian economy for American interests. A major effort in that early 20th century period of American imperium in the Caribbean and in Central America. All sorts of American interventions in that region, and, and it's a history that we don't often think about anymore. And what kind of effect did that almost 20-year occupation have on Haiti going forward? Well, it's now part of just a long history of intervention, trauma, uh, misdeeds, mistakes. Haiti went on to have, of course, a rather turbulent rest of its 20th century, most notably under the dynasty, political dynasty of the Duvaliers, who were kleptocrats, murderous uh, leaders, but they were anti-communist. So they were propped up by the U.S. for quite some time. If you fast forward to the 1990s, where the U.S. intervened on behalf of the democratically elected leader Jean-Bertrand Aristide, that was another moment where the U.S. thought it was coming in to salvage and, and help and redeem the, the Haitian Republic and bolster its democracy. It didn't quite turn out that way. At the same time, the Clinton administration forced Haiti to drop tariffs on American agricultural imports and as a result essentially played a role that, that Bill Clinton has uh, since apologized for in devastating the Haitian agricultural sector, especially its rice farmers. So there are all sorts of political economic legacies that linger. Of course, Haiti's problems are not only foreign imposed, but at the same time, you do have uh, a pretty significant groundswell of Haitian activists and civil society figures 
crying out for their voices and their ideas and their solutions to get prioritized in whatever takes place in the coming months. I always find it really interesting that these eras of history, like the Haitian Revolution and how the U.S. reacted to that, or the fact that the U.S. occupied Haiti for almost two decades, the fact that we as a country forget about those parts of history, I think, shape how we see Haiti now, that people are very quick to write it off as chaotic or dysfunctional or just endemically troubled, but that we don't really take responsibility as a country for our role in that. Absolutely. That's the kind of central tension when thinking through what what happens next. In that, yes, Haiti is a troubled country. It's a country that needs all sorts of practical assistance at this point. But at the same time, you cannot approach it as this place that you will come and redeem and save because Haiti is a part of your, the American story as well. It, it casts a shadow on the American narrative of its own independence and its own freedom. And in the present day, uh, you have a major Haitian-American diaspora that is a vibrant and uh, vocal part of the American society. And rather than seeing this crisis as taking place in this benighted, hopeless place, that it's it's part of a, a shared hemispheric story that America does have to have some responsibility in. Do you think that the way we talk about Haiti is racist? In- interpreting the we there. Right, right. you will. Yes, it is racist. It's racist in the very just basic terms, not acknowledging the role that white supremacy and global racial capitalism has played in destroying Haiti, but also in ways in which this quote-unquote superiority that we're living in is built on literally the death of enslaved laborers. To call it a failed state, to call it resistant to progress, as David Brooks has. You can look at French Ambassador Didier Lebré. It's a tragic country. I mean, these are, these are discourses that are meant to make white majority societies, settler societies, or, or former colonial societies feel good about ourselves. Yes, I think there's a very real argument to make that the approach and worldview that has dominated American thinking about Haiti is shaped by racial tropes. And, and this is kind of uh, cemented American understanding and thinking about Haiti. You had uh, then-Senator Joe Biden in the mid-90s saying in a TV broadcast that as far as America is concerned, it wouldn't make a difference if Haiti sank into the bottom of the ocean. God-awful thing to say, if Haiti just quietly sunk into the Caribbean or rose up 300 feet, it wouldn't matter a whole but lot in terms of our the interest. World... What does that mean? And, and, and why is it okay to think that way about a country like Haiti and not, say, other parts of the world where there are more explicit geostrategic American interests? It sounds like there's so much to be worried about right now in Haiti. I'm wondering if there's anything that people are finding comfort in or anything that people feel hopeful about. If you come to Haiti, one thing you will hear a lot people talk about is the Haitian Revolution and its history, but I think it's symbolic as well. You have all these people with different um, interests. We came together in 1804 to create this nation, the first black republic. A lot of people you talk to, you will tell you that if we could do this then, we just need the right time and the right people at the right place to do some sort of order revolution. 
that would put the country back to its foot and you know bring prosperity to everybody. Bidlor Marancour is editor-in-chief of Aibo Post, a Haitian news outlet in Port-au-Prince, and he is also a contributor to The Post. Ishan Theroux is a foreign affairs columnist, and Mark Schuler is a professor at Northern Illinois University. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is mixed by Rena Flores. We would love to hear your thoughts about today's show. Tag us on Twitter with the hashtag PostReports or email our team at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post. <laughs>